This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 7th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Last week, the Cato Institute bestowed the 2021 Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty on The Innocence Project. At the dinner held September 30th, Cato's Clark Neely spoke with Innocence Project founders Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld and Executive Director Christina Swartz. Recognition of its work to ensure liberty and justice for all by exonerating the wrongfully convicted and advocating reforms to restore accountability to the criminal justice system in accord with the principles of a free society and constitutionally limited government, awarded this 30th day of September, 2021. Congratulations. We're going to have a little conversation now, get a chance to know our friends a little bit better and give them a chance to tell us about their work. Barry, I'd like to start with you. Obviously, we all understand the importance of getting innocent people out of prison or off of death row, but there's a more systemic point to the Innocence Project's work. Can you tell us about that? From the very beginning, we understood that getting an innocent person out of jail was, you know, fantastic. But uh, the real question was, how did they get there in the first place? Um, And what are the root causes uh, that make this happen in our system? And we realized that we were, we really had, uh, uh, we're in a great position because, you know, we knew as public defenders uh, just how the system works in terms of uh, problems of, you know, eyewitness misidentification, false confessions, bad science, uh, lawyers don't do the job, prosecutors and police that uh, go beyond what they should be doing. But uh, we saw, too, that the people that we exonerated had a moral force. Uh, looking at the system from their perspective uh, really could attract sustained attention to issues that people might not otherwise want to engage with. Uh, And just one, uh, Kirk Bloodsworth is here. Where are you, Kirk? Uh, (laughs) Kirk Bloodsworth, the kind of thing that we've been able to do, we take an exoneration, we hit an issue, um, and the exoneree can become the spokesperson for the issue. And Kirk, in 2004, uh, went to Congress Uh, passed the Justice for All Act with the assistance of the Bush administration and Senator Leahy, which was quite extraordinary. Um, And part of that act is the the Kirk Bloodsworth program uh, that uh, gives funding to state governments uh, to do DNA testing, all because of him. Uh, And I should add, that he's now the executive director to Witness to Innocence, which is a group of people that have been exonerated off death row, uh, and they do fantastic work. Peter, um, as a co-founder of the Innocence Project, um, particularly in the beginning, the Innocence Project tended to focus on cases involving DNA evidence. Could you explain why that is? Sure. I mean, there have been wrongful convictions for a long time, and 
when somebody put forward the uh, argument that someone was wrongly convicted, there was always a refutation. Um, people could interpret the evidence different ways. Um, and so we were looking for something that was, you know, foolproof. Um, if you can imagine, uh, all of these people, uh, Barry mentioned uh, Kirk Bloodsworth, uh, Marvin Anderson, you're here also. Could you stand for a second? You saw him in the movie. Okay. So, so, you know, Kirk gets sentenced to death in Maryland because there were three eyewitnesses. And his conviction is affirmed on appeal all the way up to the highest court. It's challenged under uh, collateral attack, habeas corpus, affirmed again. Uh, same thing with Marvin Anderson, uh, a one witness ID. Um, she was sure that's all the courts needed. So after many, many years, that conviction kept being affirmed. Um, so you can imagine that there's a great deal of, uh, well, you know, people are just in disbelief when someone asserts a claim of innocence. You know, we've all heard that, oh, I was innocent, and people don't necessarily believe it. So you have that problem. You have the problem of institutional and human bias against the fact that uh, maybe the system made a mistake. And then you have this doctrine called the doctrine of finality, which is a legal doctrine that's been around since uh, uh, the beginning of the Constitution that says at a certain point, after a person's appealed a conviction, it's over, we don't care anymore. So we knew that we needed a piece of evidence that if it indicated innocence, then the judges would agree, then the prosecutors would agree. The press would agree, the public would agree, and it would no longer be uh, speculation, there would no longer be any kind of refutation. And DNA was that. And DNA, you know, when, when, when it's a rape murder of a, of a 90-year-old person, uh, and you have the DNA which not only proves, by the way, in each of their cases, the DNA not only excluded them as the person who committed the crime, but the DNA actually identify the person who in fact committed the crime. So when you have that kind of evidence, people now believe in innocence. And, and we use DNA to get that kind of buildup of public consciousness and support for what we were doing. But after a number of years doing that, um, the consciousness of the nation changed. People began to accept the notion that our criminal legal systems are in fact quite vulnerable. And now there are a number of innocence organizations around the country that have gone beyond DNA and are looking at non-DNA cases where there's other compelling indicia of innocence. And in fact, we're now at that point where we're going to expand our, our data set from just DNA cases to non-DNA cases as well because the American public is now receptive to that vulnerability and receptive to the willingness and desire to exonerate people uh, for all kinds of reasons. So that's the basis of it. <laughs> I want to bring Christine into the conversation, but I have a quick follow-up uh, for Barry. Um, the Innocence Project has exonerated nearly 400 people since it began in 1992. I think it's pretty clear that's only the tip of the iceberg, but do we have any reliable estimates about the percentage of false convictions in our system? Well... The best study, interestingly, was done by Sam Gross and Barbara O'Brien, professors uh, from Michigan, uh, who now uh, founded the Registry on Exonerations, uh, which if you go to their website, 
that counts all the exonerations since 1989, which is the year that DNA began, so we use that as the starting point, uh, DNA and non-DNA, uh, and they do terrific work. Uh, but they did this study, they published it in the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, and they were able to get a data set where we really understood a lot about the cases, and that happened to be capital cases. So they took a data set of capital cases, they did a deep dive, and they were really able to come up with an error rate for it, um, which was around 4.1%. Now that may seem, oh, that's small. It's not small when you have two million people in prison uh, on serious felony charges. Uh, so we always knew there were thousands more, but the problem is capital cases, we know a lot about them. Uh, people really look at them. What about all those other serious felony cases uh, where attention is not being paid? Uh, it's pretty clear to us that while at this point uh, uh, people say, oh, it's unknowable. It's not unknowable. We have lousy data, to be honest with you, in the criminal justice system. When we get more of it, we'll see more of these errors, but there's plenty of innocent people out there that are still in prison. Christina, we, we heard from George Will earlier about uh, the fact that the vast majority of criminal convictions in our system today are not obtained through constitutionally prescribed jury trials. They're obtained through something we somewhat euphemistically call plea bargaining. Um, despite the Supreme Court's, I think, rather fanciful assurances that this is an essentially perfect mechanism for determining guilt, we know that innocent people have been induced to plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit. How can that possibly happen? That's a great question, and I'm going to give you all an example to explain how it happens. Uh, Rodney Roberts was a gentleman that lived in New Jersey. Uh, he had a job. He had moved to a very lovely community. He put his son in school. Um, he was you know, living the dream, sort of living a regular person's life. One night, he got into an altercation. He was arrested. He went to the police precinct. He expected to be charged with simple assault. He wasn't released, though. He wasn't released that night. He wasn't released the next night. He wasn't released the night after that. He was instead taken to the county jail where, when he met his public defender, he was told for the first time that he was being charged with the rape of a 17-year-old. As you can imagine, he was flabbergasted. He had no idea that this was you know, even a possibility. He was not guilty of this crime. Fast forward, he didn't have the money to jail, so he was held in jail. Um, his, with, you know, his kid is out. Um, he has a family that he's trying to support. He's going to lose his job because he can't get out of jail. Um, fast forward, and his, his lawyer comes to him and says, well, the prosecutor has a deal for you. You can go home in a couple of years. All you have to do is plead guilty. If, however, you go to trial, uh, you're going to lose because you've been identified in a lineup, and you're going to get a life sentence. Mr. Roberts makes the decision that is rational under those circumstances. He says, I have a child that I need to take care of. I have a family. I have to go home. Um, and while I am absolutely innocent of this, this charge, I can't stay in prison. I can't stay here and risk a life sentence. So he makes the rational choice to plead guilty. And he thinks that he can come out and then fight it on the other side. Rodney spends 18 years in prison for a crime he was not guilty of, 
and he was ultimately exonerated by DNA. This is how the system works. There are so many cases that come through the courts. Prosecutors are incentivized to offer um, these kinds of, make, make these kinds of plea offers to people who are going through the system, and it, it incentivizes people to plead guilty regardless of whether or not they're innocent because they can't risk losing their families, losing their jobs, losing their, their children, losing their, their homes. And so the choice is made ultimately to plead guilty. So the system burdens the presumption of innocence so profoundly that innocent people plead guilty because that becomes the rational choice. Another question for you. Um, you know, when I came over to Cato to do criminal justice reform work, one of the most horrifying things that I learned about in a system that I think is full of horrors is called the trial penalty. And I wonder if you could tell people who've never heard of the trial penalty what it is and what role does it play in our system? It's, it's exactly the same as the story of, of Rodney Roberts, right? It is the practice of saying, um, although we all understand that the state bears the burden of proving someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, um, if you choose as a person that is innocent and going through the system to hold the state to that burden, um, there's going to be an enormous cost to you, meaning that if you f ask the state to show its proof, to show its cards, to prove you guilty, then you will face an enormous amount of time in prison, far more than you will face if you plead guilty right after you're arrested, far more than you will face if you plead guilty after you've been 30 days in the process, far more than you will uh, receive if you uh, plead guilty 60 days into the process. The further you go into the process, the more work that you ask the state to do, the more you hold the state to its burden, its constitutional burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, the more time you will do in prison. And if you require the state to take you to trial, in many instances, people are facing the death penalty and life sentences. And so, again, innocent people make the rational choice to avoid a trial. They give up their presumption of innocence because they cannot face the risk that is associated with going to trial. Um, so, Peter, my, my father was a NASA engineer. He actually helped put a man on the moon. My sister's a doctor in Maine. And as a young lawyer, I did medical malpractice defense work. And what I learned from those experiences is that in, in medicine, in aviation, and really almost any other high-stakes field of human endeavor, there's a process called a sentinel event review. When something unacceptable happens, a crash of the space shuttle Challenger, or a really significant act of medical malpractice, there's a process by which you drop what you're doing, you look at the process that enabled that intolerable outcome to occur, and you figure out what happened so you can fix it. I find it astonishing that we don't see this in criminal justice. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, I mean, I was on the board of a medical center, and whenever we had an unexpected, really bad outcome in the OR, we would do a root cause analysis to try and find out what happened. The purpose was not to point the finger at anybody. The purpose was to find out what systemically went wrong, tweak it to reduce the risk of it happening again. And uh, you use the two examples of medicine and aviation, but you could also say the same about private industry because they want to get it right too because it's going to affect their business. Um, 
But the reason you have that kind of uh, approach, like a root cause analysis, um, in those different sectors is because of who the affected population is. The affected population, in your examples, if things go awry in medicine, or if a plane crashes or a train derails, it's all the people in this room. So it is primarily, or considerably, at least significantly, um, white people, people of means. And uh, we all want to make sure that things are done better. Uh, and that's why we do those kind of root cause analyses. Unfortunately, in the criminal legal system, um, number one, you're dealing uh, largely with people who are poor. We're talking about crimes of, of violence that are prosecuted by the state. So people are generally poor. Uh, they're disproportionately people of color. And perhaps of equal significance, or greater significance, is they're just criminals. Who cares, right? And since people don't care and haven't cared, no one ever bothered to do those kind of sentinel events or root cause analysis um, you know, investigations. And for the first time, the Innocence Project is, is changing that a little bit. Because when people realize that, my God, like that gentleman in the film said, I'm just living a nice middle-class existence. If it could happen to me, it could happen to any of you. Uh, when people begin to realize that, then all of a sudden they go, whoa, wait a second. You know, if, if all these people are being wrongly convicted, we have to do something about it. And if it requires that kind of um, sentinel event analysis or root cause analysis, then we do it. The problem is it's very difficult for the people who are primary players in the criminal legal system, I mean law enforcement, crime labs, public defenders, prosecutors, to, to engage in that kind of uh, introspection. Um, we fought for years to get it. Finally, the FBI did it after a scandal in which they acknowledged that in 96% of the cases where their hair experts testified for the prosecution to suggest that somebody's hair was found at a crime scene, uh, that their experts exaggerated the probative value of the evidence and provided unscientific evidence 96% of the time. And so with uh, pressure from the public, they engaged in a root cause analysis. And the root cause analysis said, well, when you set up this whole system, you should have had independent, smart statisticians who were in there from the very beginning when you developed a protocol to tell you how to do it and how you couldn't say more than the data provided. Okay, they read the report, but they haven't followed it. There are at least 25 other forensic disciplines that compare patterns, whether they're bullets, tire prints, shoe prints, uh, what have you. And we've asked them to bring on independent statisticians to help them, but they consistently refuse. And they've refused, whether it's a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, it doesn't matter, they refuse. It's been very difficult to bring these people into the 21st century. Christina, you told us a bit about the trial penalty and the role that it can play in producing false convictions. Are there other persistent causes of false convictions that come up over and over again? And if we bothered to do this kind of root cause analysis, we would uncover? Absolutely. First and foremost, eyewitness misidentification is a huge cause of wrongful convictions. Three quarters of the people who have been exonerated by DNA evidence uh, had eyewitness misidentifications in their case. 
astonishingly, which is why I should add, the Innocence Project works incredibly hard to make sure that there are reliable and accurate protocols around eyewitness identification so that those, when that testimony is presented in a criminal courtroom, we can rely on it. Uh, we also know that false confessions play a significant role um, in wrongful conviction in this country. Um, we know that conduct like deception and interrogation, especially uh, when you're talking about vulnerable people like children, can and does lead people, astonishingly, to uh, confess to crimes they did not commit. So these are some of the examples. Oh, I should say, of course, um, unreliable and misapplied forensic science is also a key factor that contributes to wrongful conviction. And there are others. Um, we could talk about uh, police and prosecutorial misconduct and other factors. And I, and I think, though, the important thing I want to emphasize, though, sort of going back to the Sentinel event issue, is that one of the things that we are fundamentally lacking is a meaningful accountability structure in the criminal legal system. Um, and so unless and until there are consequences right, for these wrongful convictions, and right now there are not, um, they're going to continue. Right now we have prosecutors engaging in misconduct for which there are no consequences, misconduct that leads someone to be wrongfully convicted, defense counsel making egregious errors that leads their clients to be wrongfully conviction, convicted for which there are no meaningful consequences. So unless and until we have real true accountability in the criminal legal system, uh, we're going to continue to have wrongful convictions in this country. Um, I'm going to come back to you in the next question to, to, to wrap up, but um, the word accountability is like catnip for me, so I'm going to, I'm going to give, give, give Barry the second to last word. Um, as you and I both know, the Supreme Court invented out of whole cloth a number of immunity doctrines, qualified immunity that police routinely invoke when they have violated somebody's rights, and astonishingly, an even more robust form of immunity called absolute prosecutorial immunity, which is exactly what it sounds like, completely made up by the Supreme Court without a shred of textual or historical legitimacy, just to let prosecutors off the hook. I'm done. Comment. <laughs> Teed up for you. Is it, have I exaggerated in any way? No. Uh, and what's uh, extraordinary is that uh, we're talking about cases where everybody would agree that the Constitution was violated, but by, you know, saying, oh, well, uh, police officers acted in good faith, or uh, the prosecutor, uh, uh, we're not going to do anything because, you know, look, there's a, I understand that you don't want people practicing defensive prosecution the way we don't want doctors practicing defensive medicine. Uh, but still, there should be deterrence for intentional acts of misconduct. You saw in that tape, uh, Michael Morton. Michael Morton transformed the criminal justice system in Texas. Uh, it's not so much that we found the DNA showing that some other person had killed his wife when he was out at work uh, and then went on to commit a same kind of break-in murder in Austin, Texas. Uh, it wasn't just that. It's that we discovered that the prosecutor in that case hid exculpatory evidence that somebody had been had seen a person casing Michael's house the night before um, to do this kind of break-in um, when that was his defense at trial, and the prosecutor never revealed it. There was other things. So we actually turned around. There's this crazy thing they call in Texas a court of inquiry. So we brought a court of inquiry against that prosecutor, Ken Anderson, 
because we demonstrated that he intentionally did this. But there was no real statute of limitations that run completely. So we were able to actually get him on contempt as a continuing offense. He was a judge in the courthouse in Williamson County and writing books teaching other prosecutors how to be a prosecutor. Um, and thankfully, he got 10 days, uh, served, I don't know, six, um, for the, the misdemeanor of contempt in Texas um, and then disbarred. But it led to the best discovery law just about in the country. It led to changing the system in terms of being able to disbar prosecutors. But we really ought to have an end to absolute immunity and, and a simple one that uh, the tort system in this country would understand. You can have liquidated damages if you can prove that a prosecutor intentionally engaged in misconduct that resulted in the conviction of an innocent person. Just do that. It's hopefully going to be extremely rare, but if you just do that, there's some deterrence. The other big issue out there has to do with policing. And it is very disappointing to see that the United States Congress could not come to terms uh, over the George Floyd Act and just take two provisions of it. Let's, I know qualified immunity, we know killed it. But there were two other things that had been in uh, the 21st century policing recommendations, agreement across the board. Um, and that was we should be able to track police officers who have been disciplined, disciplined for misconduct, lying and cheating by their own departments. But because of laws all across this country and states, uh, that is not known. So you, you see this on all the police shooting case, whether it was uh, Van Dyke in Chicago who had all these uh, charges against him, or uh, Eric Garner in New York, uh, uh, Officer Pantaleo, uh, Tamir Rice, all these cases, including Derek Chauvin, right, um, in Minnesota itself, the George Floyd case, they all had prior undisclosed acts of misconduct that judges, that prosecutors, that lawyers didn't know about. Now, those secrecy laws have to go. And I will tell you the best bill in the country right now that just got passed that you all should look at is Senate Bill 2 in California. You'll like it. It has some qualified immunity uh, fixes in it. But what it does is something simple that every, every state should adopt. It says, now, every police officer should get a license, right? So you get a certificate, you get a license, certain training that you have. There's a standards uh, that will apply statewide in California, including dishonesty, uh, uh, sexual misconduct, uh, all kinds of things that you would expect could disqualify somebody from being a police officer. Because unfortunately, with all these union contracts, you know, you go into arbitration. If it's no family conviction, you don't get canned in so many places. But the other key part of this bill, because I was talking before about lousy data in the criminal justice system, it is astonishing to know that in just about in every state in this country, the shield number of a police officer is not a unique identifier. There is no unique identifier. But Senate Bill 2 in California says you get a license, you get a police officer standard and training license, and it must be a unique identifier. So we can see when cops get fired in one police department and go to another. We can track people 
who do bad things in courts where judges find they violated the Constitution or they beat people up or they just lied and, they're and or they do something internally in their department, we can track them because there's a unique identifier. This is the first time that's happened and it's got to happen in every state. I think that the Biden administration and the Congress uh, should at least agree that you don't get any burn money for policing, which is the, the statute that you know, funds, uh, feds use to fund the states, unless at least you have a system in your state where there's a license and a unique identifier. It's a fundamental of any business system. You can't manage what you can't measure. And if you can't track police misconduct, you'll never fix it. So, Christine, I um, will tell you that I've been sort of, um, I've got butterflies in my stomach all day because I idolize you guys, and I'm so honored to be up here with you. And, you know, you have an amazing background. Um, you, you were a federal public defender, head of the appellate unit in New York. Um, you were one of the very few African-American women who's argued a Supreme Court case. You have been the leader of the Innocence Project now for about a year, and I just wonder, where do you go from here? What are you going to do with your team of superheroes? Hey, <laughs> and I do have a team of superheroes, so thank you for, for acknowledging that. Um, so the Innocence Project is going forward. We're going to fight for fair and effective and compassionate systems of justice for everyone. We're going to continue to fight to free the innocent, and we're going to work incredibly hard to finally bring an end to wrongful conviction in this country. In order to do this, we're going to redouble our commitment to science. We're going to scrutinize the data and find the trends in the cases. And we know today that means we're going to have to examine and scrutinize emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and facial recognition software, not only for reliability and accuracy, but we need to consider the ethical, social, legal, racial implications of the use of that kind of technology and ask ourselves whether it belongs in the criminal legal system. We're also going to look at such issues as racial discrimination and the role that racial bias plays in wrongful conviction in this country. We're also going to look at law enforcement, police and prosecutorial accountability and make sure that people are held accountable uh, for the mistakes that they make that contribute and cause wrongful conviction. At the end of the day, the Innocence Project is going to restore lives. We're going to support and build a movement uh, to, to, to ensure right, innocent people are no longer convicted of crimes. And we are going to transform the system of justice in this country. Thank you. Well, it's, uh, it's been a real honor, and uh, I'm so proud to have been able to be part of this. Thank you for coming, and thank you for, for uh, accepting our award, and thank you to all of you. It's been a wonderful evening, and uh, thanks for your support. Thank you. Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld are co-founders of The Innocence Project, where Christina Swarns is executive director. 
The Innocence Project is the recipient of the 2021 Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.